scripture reading for this morning is is Acts chapter 6. Now during these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends... Select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, and the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do y'all remember what happens next in the story? Stephen gives a sermon, and it's at least 45 minutes long, so I'm in good company. We're going to talk about Stephen's response to these accusations as we move forward here together. Uh, Story of Acts is a story of the world being turned upside down. And each week we move further and further into this book, I am uh, made acutely aware of how high the stakes are and how high the anxiety becomes over time. But before we jump deep in, I want to start uh, with a little bit of what I found this week. Brian, will you throw the first slide up? So, I decided late in the week that I had this perfect image for what's happening in this story. And to give you this image, I needed to find a picture of a baby gazelle. And so I googled baby gazelle, which seems like the most mundane of things that you can google. Super safe, right? Turns out googling anything and then doing an image search on it is fraught with risk. Uh... But this is the image that you maybe were hoping you would see this morning. Oh, no! This is the Christ candle. And I don't know what that means. 
that that just happened. <laughs> Still lit, so that's good news. This is <laughs> this is a picture of a baby gazelle, uh, and it's super cute. But that's not why I wanted to show it to you this morning. Because when I was thinking of baby gazelle, I was thinking about which animal it is out in the wild that is the most vulnerable. It's either a baby gazelle or an injured gazelle, because those are the ones that are easiest to catch. And so this is more, I'm not going to show you an image, by the way, of what I drew for you next, because that would have been very rude. Uh, but turns out most of the images, when you do an image search, I have a lot of uh, the light of Christ in my water here. Um, <laughs> most of the images, when you do a search for this, are of baby gazelles getting eaten. Most of them being eaten by hyenas. Uh, that is what I wanted to show you this morning or tell you about, because that is the image of what's happening in this part of the book of Acts. If you go back a couple of chapters, you will find in chapter 5 that the religious leaders at the time are getting really hot and bothered by all of the disciples and the stories that they're telling about Jesus and what has happened to Jesus, particularly in his death, and who might, in fact, be responsible for that death, which turns out to be all of the broken parts of humanity. But whenever you sound like you're part of the broken parts of humanity, you get a little bit defensive. And so that's what happens. And there's this part in chapter 5 where it says that the religious leaders, they grew really jealous of these disciples. But they didn't do anything to them public. Because if they had done something to them public, they were afraid that the people might stone them. Because the people were also turning out to be quite interested in the spectacle of the gospel breaking forth in the world. So what happens is this new character shows up on the scene through the midst of just like a very mundane family issue... Food isn't getting dispersed to the right people at the right amount of time. Oh, thank you. You can drink this one if you want. Okay, great. It's got some wax in it. Okay, nothing but the blood. So Stephen shows up, uh, this Hellenist, this uh, sort of different flavor of believer, and he is intensely vulnerable. And all of that jealousy, all of that anger, and all of that rage that they can't apply to those they wish they could, they find this perfect little scapegoat or scape gazelle in this story. That's kind of in the background. There is this stalking nature to chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Acts, where the powers of death that work their way through the world and the powers of life made known in Christ are colliding over and over again. And they collide at the very sight of Stephen's body in this story. But I want to say one thing as we continue forward, a bit of a disclaimer. And this is important. There is a tendency when reading the Gospels or reading the book of Acts or reading a lot of the New Testament that you will see that the religious leaders are always the ones who are causing trouble for Jesus' people. And you might think in your mind, oh, I know who the enemy is. It's all of those folks who were persecuting these early Christians. And the Bible talks about them like the Jewish leaders. So this must be the story of Judaism against Christianity. That's a t- it's a terrible reading of the New Testament, but it's a very common one. And that terrible reading has led to a lot of really bad things. So I just want to say a couple things on the outset, because we are, right now, most of us, if we didn't grow up in the tradition of Judaism, 
uh, late to the party looking in on a story that's being told for a long time. Uh, so let's just say some facts real quick that maybe aren't clear, but they should be. Jesus was not a Christian. That's a term that comes along later. Jesus was a good Jew teaching God's people, the Jewish people, about this sort of unfolding understanding of what God is up to in the world. It says in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, like, I'm not here to replace. I'm here to fulfill. Jesus was himself a Jew. And in fact, not just Jesus, but the disciples, and then all of the early church, the early Christians, were also coming out of the Jewish experience. And didn't at first understand themselves as a brand new thing, sort of over against the old religion, but in fact, this new understanding of Judaism. If we miss this point, then when we look in on these stories, what we might see uh, is two faiths sort of at war with one another. And we might think that we're supposed to continue to participate in that kind of struggle and war. Uh, if you're familiar with terms like blood libel, uh, that is the historic application of blame for Christ's death on the Jewish people, often resulting in lots of physical violence. Um, again, Christ's death is at the hands of the brokenness of our world, and we all find ourselves inside of that story. Anti-Semitism is born out of a misunderstanding of what's happening even here. But what we see happening in this story is an inner religious debate among different flavors of Judaism. And one of these flavors is talking about this Messiah named Jesus the Christ. Okay, I just want to say that on the outset so we don't continue into the story thinking, oh, well, the gazelles are us and the hyenas are those other people. And we just need to make sure that we know who's on whose team because that would miss all of what's happening in the book of Acts and in the gospel. It turns out at the time of this telling and in the time known as Second Temple Judaism, there are multiple competing, overlapping versions of what it means to be Jewish. You may have noticed if you've read through the New Testament that you'll hear words like uh, Pharisee or Sadducee or Zealot or Essene. We've talked about those before. Those are kind of the four big versions of what it means uh, to follow the path of Judaism at the time. Uh, and on top of all of this kind of multiplicity of expression, by the way, this is not a new thing or an old thing either. How many different kinds of Baptists are there? There are so many kinds, and you know what? We don't all get along. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the biggest fights are often between members of the same family. If you've got friends who are in Methodism, there's right now this intense inner religious conflict going on within Methodism. Uh, and if we were to look in on that, we would see something different than what they see kind of looking within their own world. Uh, so Stephen, Jesus, Peter, John, all these early disciples are on the inside of this long conversation that's been happening with God and God's people. But if there's all of these different flavors of Judaism at the time, there is also this kind of overarching superstructure that is pushing down on all of this interreligious tension and conflict that's making it a lot worse. It's making the stakes a lot higher. And it feels as though it's imperiling the very future of God's people in the world. And that force, by now we should know really well, is empire. It's Rome. Each different expression of Judaism has a different way to deal with the problem of Rome, the problem of empire, 
the problem of other people ruling God's land. Now, this creates a ton, a ton of anxiety. Because the, the superpower that's in charge of culture at the time is at various times hostile or accommodating, but you're never quite sure if you're safe and secure in your own faith. Even though they're in the land, the Jewish people are experiencing an exile reality. They are spiritual, political, economic refugees in their own homeland. And this is deeply, deeply painful. I have a quote I want to show you that talks about what happens to religious anxiety when it's pushed down from the top. And it's what we see in this story. It's from a a guy named Edward Said. Exile is a jealous state. What you achieve is precisely what you have no wish to share. And it's in the drawing of lines around you and your compatriots that the least attractive aspects of being in exile emerge. An exaggerated sense of group solidarity and a passionate hostility to outsiders, even those who may in fact be in the same predicament as you. And now we start to feel what's actually happening within this early community known as the church that exists within this larger community known as Judaism. This exile condition, being not in charge of your own destiny and your own future, is created this intense crisis and anxiety. They don't know anymore who they are. It's hard to nail down what group you belong to when there's all of these different versions of your group. And on top of that, you've got this other structure on top of you, empire, that is pushing and pulling you in all kinds of ways that make you feel unfaithful to your primary identity as God's people. Introducing certain kinds of food customs and certain kinds of uh, worship of different gods and uh, different religious temples that would spring up in other places. All of this disorients you to who you are. So even though you're at home, home in your land, it doesn't feel like home. It's like you went on vacation and while you were gone, someone moved in, rearranged all the furniture, changed all the locks, changed your pictures for their pictures, and then asked you to sleep in the shed. That's what it feels like for the people at this time. This intense identity crisis. And on the scene bursts, and now we're going to get into our text this morning, the Hellenists. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it somewhere around Acts chapter 6. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Just a quick word about who the Hellenists are. The Hellenists are this other sort of emerging expression of Judaism. Because it turns out that when you keep getting conquered over and over and over again, and that's the story of the Middle East at this time, and Palestine, and uh, the place we would know as the Holy Land, you keep having to absorb over and over again your oppressor and conqueror's cultures. And so right before Rome came in to conquer, who came in before them, but Alexander the Great, and this Greek influence. And in the midst of this Greek conquering, a lot of uh, Jews at the time decided we can be Jewish and we can be Greeks. 
And so they would uh, shave their beards and they would dress in whatever the clothes were at the time. And uh, they would go to the gymnasiums and they would enter into all of this sort of Greek culture alongside Judaism. And this was always a bit of a contentious state to live in because good fidelity to the law, to the commandments in the Hebrew scriptures is part of what it means to be the Jewish people. And so this looks like a dangerous kind of mixing that's happening. And then some of these Hellenized Jews decide that Jesus is the Messiah and enter into the church. So now you have in the church all of this difference. Can you feel that? It'd be like if, uh, well, it'd be like if this happened. All of us. You do know that the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you probably has a different story, a different approach to God, a different family background. We hold things at our core together but on the edges there is some difference and we're all going to take a deep breath and know that that is okay and in fact part of what it means to be the diversity of the body of christ but when you've got this force from above that difference is dangerous and we see it happening here the hellenists start to complain against the hebrews that their people aren't getting enough food compared to the other people and this creates some conflict the way they solve that is they deputize out the serving of food because preachers should never wait at the table i haven't heard that verse before and so uh they get this other group of folks stephen one of these people who are going to help with this kind of inner family conflict Now we get to, and I want to show you the deep danger of living in an exile culture. What's happening in this story that definitely starts to feel resonant with where we are today. When all of the old identity markers start to get shaky, you look for anything and everything to kind of hold the center. And when communities, religious, ethnic communities feel threatened, They often go to one of two places and often go to these two places simultaneously. And that's uh, race and place. Or in the more dangerous designation, blood and soil. And this is what's being presented to God's people at this time. Can they survive? Can their faith survive? If they can no longer name with any kind of ethnic precision who is in or who is out. Look at all of this mixture happening in the synagogues and in the temples. Who are the true people of God? And God's true people are whoever get to worship in Israel. But what if you don't get to worship in Israel with freedom? What if the very presence there is threatened and you might at some point get truly exiled back out into the wilderness? Then how do you construct an identity if you can't do so with blood and soil? So when this happens, when groups get threatened this way, they move back hard into these primary modes of identity. Do they look like me? And do they share a physical space with me? Can faith survive without these two things? It is an overarching question for Judaism. And it is a core question for Christianity. Because Christianity, even though a certain version of kind of Roman adoption of our faith exists, has always been a people without a place. We have always followed the spirit of God, wherever God's spirit goes, which turns out to be everywhere and anywhere. It's not just can faith survive without blood and soul, but can can our core identities survive without it? 
there has been, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but there's been some conflict in our country as of late. Did you know? People are really anxious. Really anxious. That anxiety is borne out even sometimes in actual violence. But at the very least, in deep rifts and conflicts among one another. The way we talk about it in politics is polarization. But all that really means is that we're just moving further and further away from one another. Now, we say a lot in here that sin is that which evidences our own separation and alienation from one another, from God, from creation, and from ourselves. That sin is separation enacted in creation. And so if what we're experiencing culturally is polarization, then the way we talk about that is somehow sin has worked its way into the system in such a way that it is becoming like emblematic of the system. You may remember Charlottesville when the white nationalists were marching because of the removal of Confederate statues. And one of the things that they chanted was, this is for blood and soil. Turns out that that chanting, that phrasing, is actually a borrowed term from uh, Nazi Germany, who also were people deeply disaffected from home and from identity. After World War I, Treaty of Versailles, really problematic, burdened with debt, sort of a loss of a homeland and a sense of physical space. And what happens in that anxiety, if not the biggest birthing of a death pattern? Blood and soil is what arises whenever community cohesion starts to fall apart. You start to police the borders. You start to police who belongs in or out. Can you feel what is happening? Often this is joined together with a perceived downsliding in social mobility or importance or in power. You see a push towards something like blood and soil in the South during Reconstruction. When all of a the sudden there is this new leveling of humanity. When freed African slaves are beginning to get a sense of equality with those who were once their masters. And in this space, all of that anxiety bubbles up. And really clear lines are drawn about who is in and who is out. Blood and soil is a failure of the Christian imagination. It always has been. It's a failure of understanding who God is at God's core. This is what the religious leaders are reacting to with Stephen's presence, with all of this presence of diversity in their community. They even say, listen, here's why we're so upset. Because these new people are going to get rid of our sacred places. They say this Jesus is going to tear down the temple, right? That's soil. And then he's going to change the customs. So it's going to be harder and harder to identify who God's people are anymore based on the old ways of measuring. This anxiety turns into jealousy. That jealousy turns into violence. That violence looks for a victim. And we find one in this person, Stephen. Blood and soil says this. It says that the actions of God are limited to a certain kind of person. And it says that God is only found in certain places. Here's where I've seen that operate over the last 10, 15 years or so. You may remember that uh, at some point in our national history, there was a push uh, to sort of go and rescue parts of the Middle East from a perceived uh, barbarism. 
And part of the way we language that as a nation, and I say we intentionally because I think all of us were caught up in a moment of togetherness after 9-11, is that we were going to go and convert into a better way of life folks who had not yet found that kind of enlightenment. Uh, What we missed was that in moving into Iraq, there were tons and tons and tons of indigenous Christians already there. But there was a certain commitment to God exists in a certain place and exists in a certain type of person, and it was hard to see them. It was hard for me to see them until years after all of that invasion and war, and I found out, oh, there are all of these Christian refugees all over the Middle East now because of what's happened. Another place that this feels really prescient now, and listen, if this sounds to you like what I'm talking about is not faith but is in fact politics, I'm not. What I'm trying to do is follow Jesus wherever Jesus leads us. And part of where Jesus leads us is to notice the presence of Christ all through creation. So right now, there is a limiting factor happening with uh, folks who are looking for asylum or refuge out of uh, the global south, particularly Central and South America. And uh, we can have other conversations at other times with smarter people than me about immigration policy at a national level. However, the vast majority of folks seeking refuge and asylum, the vast majority, over 80%, are Christians. And so at least for us, it is a failure of imagination to not see Christ moving toward us. Because right now there is so much polarization and lack of community cohesion that we're drawing hard boundaries again. Because it's scary. It's just scary. You see this in the church too. I'll say I have not seen it active in this congregation explicitly. And it's one of the joys of being present with you. But more broadly in our culture, there has been a slide in religion where people aren't coming to church as much, they're not giving as much money, they're not claiming what we would say are our kind of moral virtues as the center of their life. And because of this slide, there's a lot of religious anxiety. And that religious anxiety looks for people to blame. And you can feel this splitting denominations, congregations, all of this. It is hard to hold the center. When I was in the South for a family funeral, there was a ton of people there, ton of family. Family I never knew I knew. That's just what happens in the South. You meet cousins and uncles and triple aunts and uncles. And so there was this one person that I think knew me, but I didn't know who they were. And they came up to me. They knew I was pastoring a church in California. And this is what blood and soul looks like for folks committed to a certain kind of like a Southern Christianity versus something that looks more like a a universal Christianity, uh, they ask the question, you'll love this question, um, are there any Christians out there in California? <laughs> There's just this assumption that as you head out west, that the Christianity that you grew up with is going to fade away. And whatever faith you find in this new land is going to be compromised because it looks so strange compared to the faith you grew up with. This wasn't like a mean question. It was an honest question. This person had committed to a certain look, feel, style of what it meant to follow God, and it just didn't make sense outside of his context. It looks like pernicious at times and dangerous, and sometimes it just looks like an uncle five times removed asking a very honest question about where God's people might be. Are there any of God's people out west in California? I told him yes, and I told him about you. And it was a great conversation. And he was not resistant to the idea. was very open to understanding where God might be active, but... 
the same kind of thing is happening. And it's a failure of imagination. That's what happens in this story. That these religious leaders, they cannot imagine where God might be present. And as Stephen gives them back their tradition, and that's what he does in his long sermon. It's the longest set of text uh, probably in the New Testament. Uninterrupted. It's all of chapter 7, and I'm not going to read it all to you. But what Stephen does is genius. The high priest asks him, are these things so? Are you causing this kind of disruption? Are you threatening the faith in the way that everyone says you're threatening the faith? Because they are really upset. Everybody is stirred to anger, and they've already got clubs and stones, and they're ready to deal with this as they would need to. What is your defense for these charges? Now, Luke, who's credited with writing Acts, writes the Gospel of Luke, and Luke 12 says this kind of thing's going to happen. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, listen, he's speaking to his followers, listen, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how you're going to defend yourself or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. Do not be anxious, is Jesus' command. Don't be anxious when folks don't understand the story that you're living. The Spirit will help you find the words in that moment. Anxiety and worry, in the Greek, it means to be split apart inside, to kind of fracture out. And that's what it feels like to often be in our world these days. It's just Congregations, communities, countries are fracturing out. And in that fracturing, all of that anxiety and worry moves in to the center. Jesus says, do not be afraid. The Spirit will give you the words when you need them. So when Stephen stands up to speak, are these things so, the high priest asks. Stephen replies, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Speaks like Moses. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Listen, I'm going to say this stuff in the old tongue with your old story. And I'm going to give it to you again. He's going to perform the faith for them with language. And it is gorgeous. The glory of God appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That is not the land. That is outside the land. Beginning the story to tell them how God has existed all throughout creation. He does it over and over again. Tells the story of Abraham. Tells the story of Moses. It turns out the patriarchs, Joseph, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him even in Egypt. Even in a foreign land with foreign gods and foreign practices, God is still present. He does this over and over again. When he describes Moses in verse 22, he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And was powerful in word and deed. Not this fear, but this deep understanding about their central character, Moses. He spent time in these traditions, absorbing the wisdom from them and carrying them back to you in a new way and encountering the living God. Moses fled and became a resident alien in the land of Midian. That is outside the land. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness on the Mount Sinai in the flaming bush. He meets God in the wild places between country, between soils. It says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. A little bit later, our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness. God is present in all places. 
And then, in case it's not clear, at the end of this sermon, he says, Solomon built a house for him. David wanted to, but didn't get to, but Solomon got to build the temple. Temple becoming the most holy site in Judaism. If God is present anywhere, God is present there. The problem is when you start to have a specific place where God might be present, you stop remembering that God is present elsewhere. As if you came here on Sundays and you thought, whew, it's a good thing I got to meet God this week. Now at 12 o'clock noon, I'm going to leave God's presence and move back into the rest of creation absent of God. That's not the way that God works. And Stephen is telling them this again. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of place of my rest did not my hands make all things? God's people are afraid. For good reason. They have been under threat for a long time. And by the time we receive this text in its final form, the book of Acts, the second temple has, in fact, been destroyed. Rome has moved in on the Jewish people and wiped them out, has scattered them around the world, has destroyed their places of worship, has taken all identity from them. Everything they were afraid of happening, in fact, happens to them. So when Stephen says, all these things that you are attaching your worth, your identity to, They are ephemeral. They will at some point dissipate. And if that's all that's holding you to God, then you are going to lose a grip. God is not found only in these spaces you think God is found in. And God does not sound just like the way you've learned to talk about God. God is saying a new thing, but it is the same God. And when Jesus shows up proclaiming a deep knowledge about the divine, it is in fact an invitation into the deep heart of God. Can you see it? They can't see it. What Stephen is saying is that when religion itself tries to trap God, and this happens over time, when our practices seek to create boundaries around God, not of understanding but of limiting, that God is going to break free. And that breaking free can feel like a breaking loose. And if you've experienced this kind of loss before, where the God you thought you knew doesn't make sense to you anymore, and the faith that you've been practicing doesn't work anymore, you might feel like you're losing everything. All of your sense of identity is belonging to God, is being a child of God. And if your attachments are just to a particular speech pattern and set of practices, then you will feel lost. And some of you have felt lost. Some of you right now feel lost. And in that loss, there is anxiety and there is fear. God is not abandoning us. God is carrying us forward into the future. But the loss that accompanies that kind of change is terrifying. So what do they do? Well, let me just say, by the way, that Stephen ends this sermon with a little bit more fire than I would have recommended. Uh, that whatever, like, seminary class is subtlety 101, just didn't take that class. Because I'll read for you the last bit he says. He says, you stiff-necked people. Um, I haven't used that phrase yet on us. 
<laughs> I'll turn this way so you don't think I'm talking to you. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. You are just like your parents. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. Now everybody bow your heads, and let's pray to God. When they heard these things, (laughs) they became enraged, and they ground their teeth. The language for enraged is it's as though their heart just is torn in half. Their insides are wretched. They become enraged and they grind their teeth. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazes into heaven and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout, they all rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This feels barbaric, but it is very sensible. What's happening here is a community feels under threat. And just like whenever you get sick and your body metabolizes against that threat, this host metabolizes against Stephen to eliminate this danger from their midst because they want to survive more than anything else. And so they handle it in a communal way. We don't do firing squads anymore, although I do think if we're going to be the kind of nation that wants to kill people, then we should probably own it with some kind of visible representation. So firing squads were the old way that we would handle capital punishment. And the point of a firing squad was not to be more barbaric, but to spread out the weight of taking a life. There was a practice that if you had like five guns lined up, that you wouldn't know if you had a live bullet or if you had a blank. So that you would never know exactly who the one was who killed the person. It was a communal way of exercising justice. It was actually a bit of kindness involved in it. Which is why there are some times where folks who are uh, on death row will request death by firing squad. Stoning is the same kind of thing. It looks super barbaric on the outside. But what it means is that we all have to take ownership for this kind of thing. If we are going to inflict this kind of violence in the world, we can't just limit it to one or two executioners, but we all have to say that we have a stake in it. And if it's going to be guilt, then we all have to carry it. And that's what happens with the people. They are sort of blinded by fear and anxiety, and that fear and anxiety turns into rage, and it works itself out in death. But there is a responsibility that they are practicing, even in the form of death. This kind of stoning is a logical response of a community in deep crisis. They are afraid. I don't really care to point fingers at what's happening in our own world right now. All I know is that people are afraid. And they are given weak answers for the problems they face. They are told who to blame. And they are told that their fear is warranted. We are told that our fear is warranted. People are coming for our rights, are coming for our freedom, are coming for our joy and our happiness. If you believe that long enough, then you will feel like you've got to attack whatever it is that's threatening your people. Exile is a jealous state. And it draws old boundaries and names new enemies. 
This all started out from a food crisis. It's like a small dispute about food. And it turns into arguing and bickering and slander, into heartbreak, into violence and death. Because it was never about the food. It was always about this fear of change. And change, when it creates anxiety, is always the fear of loss. But here's the thing. And this is what it means for us. To follow Jesus. And if Stephen looks like anything, it looks like he's learned the dance steps with Jesus. He's figured out what it means to walk the cruciform path. But if following Jesus means anything, it means that we are going to change. Transform is the language that we would use. And that is not always an easy passage. It usually is not an easy passage. It is fraught with loss and accompanying anxiety and fear. So what is the thing that I say all the time? The first thing I said to you whenever I met you two years plus ago. Someone asked me in a listening session outside in the courtyard, what's the like one thing you would want us to know about the kind of pastoring you're going to do with us? What's the one verse, the one focus? And I said, just don't be afraid. That if there's anything that Jesus is saying over and over again, it's don't be afraid to trust. What was the line we sang, Pastor Leslie? Jesus, lead me where my trust is without borders. What is the limit of our trust in God? Where will we allow God to take us? Who will we be bold enough to love and to welcome? These are hard questions. And our congregation has asked them over and over again across 130 years. And each time we have chosen to not be afraid, but to lead where the Spirit would take us. What we see in the early church is the place of the church's birth. And it's where we find ourselves always. One of the writers that I read this week, and this is the last thing I'll leave you with, is that the church is born in between the tight space between faith and fear. And the Spirit keeps that space from collapsing. The invitation to follow God is always an invitation into losing a lot. Lose your life so that you might find it. It's the way that Jesus says it. We are always born in the tight space between faith and fear. And we are asked to hold that center. Yes, we're going to be afraid. Yes, if you have found yourself drawn to the heart of God, you are going to feel some things threatened in the way you've learned to live your life. Stories you were handed, scripts you were given, practices that you have been participating in that are not leading to your flourishing but to your death. So let it go. And in letting it go, it will feel like a loss. You're being made into a new creation. But the birth process is brutal. And it will create for you fear and anxiety. And so Jesus comes again with the word. The first word and the last word of the gospels. Do not be afraid. Friends, we live in a world right now where everyone is looking for stones to figure out how to purge this fear that is just taking up root in our world. What would it look like to be a people bold and calm 
to be present in the spaces where people are freaking out and to trust that God's love and God's presence and God's grace does not know boundaries or borders. To not hold that conviction with antagonism, but with grace and kindness. That might look like the church. And that is who we claim to be. It is an exceeding joy that you are my friends who we get to do this with. I'm going to ask if you would close your eyes as we pray together. Let me say a few words about where we have been in these last few minutes. We all are in this space carrying some amount of fear. It doesn't have to be the big kinds of fear, friends. It doesn't have to be the fear of death, the fear of violence. It could be the small fears, the fear of the electric bill next month, the fear that a kid is off the rails for good, the fear that your love is going to be inadequate, the fear that God will see you and judge you rather than hold you. To be honest about it and to name it as part of it. So I'm going to ask you now as your eyes are closed, as we move into prayer, that when we breathe in, that we would breathe in trust, that we would breathe in God's spirit that will tell us what to say and what to do. And as we breathe out, that we would let go of that which holds us captive, of fear and worry, because there is nothing left to fear. When we breathe in, breathe in that same spirit that Stephen had, that allowed him to see God in the moment of deep suffering. And to speak God's words with Christ in that moment of crisis, forgive them. And breathe out any hatred and any antagonism that we carry because we are just human. This pattern of breathing, of taking God in and letting go of that which would hold you from God. Keep that faith in and fear out. Dear God, meet us where we are right now. A people often shaken like a leaf, but committed to follow you wherever you're taking us. And if this is where you took your church in the early days, then we should expect that the road will be rocky at times. And yes, we're going to still squabble about food, God, so forgive us. And please, please limit our anxiety to food conversations before they turn into violence. But we need to be honest and confess that we are still products of this world and our culture that is telling us lies about who our enemy might be, about what we need to do to stay safe. So we trust no weapon of this world. And we trust only in the power of Christ. Make us children of the resurrection. Fit to speak a word of reconciliation. That all that is being pulled apart, we would be the sight, the witness, the presence of what is being put back together. 
in this room, in this place, with these friends, God. Knit us whole again. We believe, help our unbelief. We trust, but only in part. And we love, but approximately. Perfect our love that might cast out all the demons of this world. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor John Jay. Um,